how does one define a healthy church? How would you define what a healthy church is and looks like and what it does? In my office, I have at least a handful of books, probably more, on developing a healthy church written by supposed experts. A couple of them I actually find incredibly helpful. Others are just on my shelf. (laughs) But even among the helpful ones, though, are lists of usually nine or more things to focus on in terms of church health. Several different things to look at is in terms of building a healthy church. Now, unfortunately, a Google search isn't all that much more helpful or definitive to us. It doesn't give us much more of a, a better list to go by. Uh, this week, one website I found said that there are three factors. Uh, certainly, that's more concise than nine or more, but three factors that are important for a healthy church. One, clarity of vision. Two, conflict transformation, whatever that means. Three, authentic community. And perhaps you've heard other people speak about church health uh, uh, surrounding the number of small groups or community groups, the closeness of community within a church. Maybe even a church is is determined by its health is determined by how many services or church campuses uh, have uh, have been started or or, uh, resulted as a as a part of the ministry of the church. Maybe even you look to particular programs that that are needed to make a church healthy, certain programs that come to mind, maybe even some by name. These characteristics may be compelling, but those of you who have been paying attention to the process and implementation of mission and vision here at our church at First Baptist West Albuquerque will note, I hope, a surprising lack of Christ-centeredness in some of those factors. To be quite honest, I think that we should never give priority to markers of church health from any person or committee or publisher until we have considered what God's Word says a healthy church looks like. Frankly, when we do that, we will likely come up with a list of more than three things that are indicators of biblical church health. But in Acts chapter 11, we are introduced to a, healthy, uh, a model healthy church, the church in Antioch. Often in narrative portions of Scripture, like we have in Acts, we gain more from studying the examples of the people and the groups in the text than we do from speeches or explicit teaching. Now, this is the case for us today in Acts 11. As we look at the church in Antioch, we will see three aspects of this very healthy church at Antioch that I am certain will transform the way that we think about church health so long as we allow God's word and the early success of the gospel to shape our thinking about this body of believers that we call a church here at First West. As we look at Acts 11 verses 19 through 30, we're going to find there that any church that is truly transformed and driven by the Lord Jesus will excel in at least three things, gospel ministry, transformational living, and sincere generosity. As a result of having looked at the church in Antioch here in Acts 11, I would hope that we would uh, come out with a result that we would want to exhort one another to excel in these things, gospel ministry, transformational living, sincere generosity, out of love for and transformation by Jesus. Now, I want to acquaint you a little bit or help you to get acquainted a little bit with the world uh, and the geography of the world in which we are looking at presently. And so Chris is going to throw a map up on the screen for us. And uh, I have a better pointer. There's a, I got a laser pointer, which, by the way, you can't find these things at Best Buy. Do you know where I had to go get a laser pointer? I had to go to PetSmart because apparently <laughs> laser pointers are, are only good anymore for playing with your cat. But we don't have cats at our house but anyway, so I went there. Okay, so here is kind of uh, a, a zoomed in uh, a picture of the Roman Empire at the time. We have here Jerusalem. Hopefully you can see that. 
Jerusalem right there, which is kind of the, the, uh, uh, the, the center of church growth and movement uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, last week, we saw, um, we saw a lot of movement here in through Palestine. Uh, this little body of water right here, that's the Sea of Galilee, just for, uh, for reference. Today, uh, we're going to see the church move to several different places. Uh, we're looking primarily uh, uh, north in the region or the city of Antioch, which is kind of right there in the, the elbow of the Mediterranean Sea. We're going to see also references to the island of Cyprus, which is this electric guitar shaped island here in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and even Cyrene, which is uh, here in Africa, modern day Libya, uh, on the northern coast of Libya. Okay, so this is just kind of where we are. Here's Jerusalem, here's Antioch, we're talking about Cyprus right there, and Cyrene um, over here all the way, uh, about 800 miles or so from Jerusalem here in, in Africa, okay? So what about Antioch? What's special about this city, Antioch? Or maybe you don't know much about it. Well, in ancient days, there were several cities called Antioch. Uh, the Antioch of Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 13 is what is known as Syrian Antioch, Antioch in the area of Syria. This city lay 300 miles north of Jerusalem, 16 miles inland from the Mediterranean. And at the time of Acts 11, it was considered the third most important city in all of the Roman Empire, uh, uh, following only Rome and Alexandria in terms of importance. Antioch lay near enough to the ocean and along important trade routes to make it a major center of commerce. And as a major commercial city, it became home to many diaspora Jews. That are those Jews who were uh, spread out from Jerusalem during the Babylonian captivity era. uh, era. Many of them settled in the area of Antioch. And from the passage at hand we have today, it was home to and the northern hub for the early church as well. Antioch, the city, boasted a population of 500,000 to 800,000 people some 2,000 years ago, and it was a very diverse one at that. One commentator notes that in the city resided Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, Indians, and Asians. As diverse as was its population, so was its spirituality. Antioch was a home to many temples of Greek gods and goddesses, but also had a considerable population of Jews as well, somewhere in the area between 25 and 50,000 who were worshiping the God of Israel. So how would one go about planting, starting, encouraging, building a healthy church in such such a diverse city? Well, here's where Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30 is helpful in the example of the church in Antioch uh, that guides us there. Would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word together? Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. There, Luke, the historian, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. So what is a healthy church? What does a model healthy church look like? Is there an example that we can even model the life of our church around? And and if so, what are some of those uh, things that that we would uh, model the life of our church around from what we see here in this church at Antioch? Well, first, in verses 19 through 21, we see that healthy churches prioritize gospel sharing. Healthy churches prioritize gospel sharing. I wonder if you noticed as we were reading that the Antioch church was started by ordinary evangelizing Christians. Verse 19 takes us back to Acts 8, verse 1, and the persecution that was started by Saul in Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen. And and here Luke continues telling the story of those who were dispersed out of Jerusalem, preaching the gospel as they went. Some, we are told here, went as far as Phoenicia to the north of Judea along the coast and to the island of Cyprus, that electric guitar-shaped island that everybody wants to live on now, and to the great city of Antioch even further north. Have you already noted in your mind, I wonder, that none of these missionaries that Luke mentions is actually named? Not one. All of these early evangelists are completely anonymous. None of them are apostles. None are noted for being evangelists, as Philip will be called later in Acts chapter 21. They are ordinary men and women who have been transformed by the promise of salvation from sin through faith in Jesus, the risen Lord. Christian, this should should excite in you a holy confidence in knowing that God delights in using ordinary people to take the gospel to the nations. The reason that these disciples are so effective is not because of their skill, not because they're skilled orators or, or gifted preachers, but because of their faithfulness. These anonymous, these nameless brothers and sisters had the same Holy Spirit, the same gospel, the same word of God that we have. And as they faithfully and boldly proclaim Jesus in the places that they go, the Lord blesses their work by calling sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus. We also see that the church in Antioch continued this gospel sharing, even to the Gentiles. We find here in these verses that as these traveling missionaries went about, like some of the disciples in Jerusalem had, they speak the gospel only to the Jews, or beginning with the Jews. Except for, Luke tells us, a few men from Cyprus and from Cyrene, these islanders and these what we would now call Libyans. Now these men were likely Greek-speaking Jews, Hellenists as we've uh, uh, referred to earlier in, uh, in Acts. As they arrive in Antioch, make their way to this major trade city, they begin sharing the uh, gospel with the Hellenists there. Now you may recall, if you've been tracking along with us in the series in Acts, that this is the third time we've talked about Hellenists in the course of Acts. The first time we saw them was in uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, where Luke uses that term Hellenists to refer to Greek-speaking Jewish believers in the church in Jerusalem. But Luke uses that that moniker Hellenists again in Acts chapter 9, 29, we saw a couple of weeks ago. And there it is used to refer to Greek-speaking Jews who were opposing Saul and the gospel in Jerusalem. But here in Acts chapter 11, Luke uses it to speak of Greek-speaking Greeks, Greek-speaking non-Jews, Greek-speaking Gentiles. 
This passage is significant, friends, for the fact that it demonstrates that the gospel has been preached to Gentiles in two parallel tracks, two parallel manners. Last week we saw, on the one hand, Peter receiving his vision there in Acts chapter 10, which resulted in the gospel going to the Gentile uh, centurion Cornelius, and then to many other people in Caesarea where Cornelius lived, followed by Peter returning to Jerusalem, where there the church in Jerusalem ratified this new gospel mission to the Gentiles. But here, in the other case, in Acts chapter 11, believers from the far western reach of the empire of Rome take the gospel to Antioch and preach it to Gentiles there in that city, presumably without the knowledge of God's revelation to Peter and to the church in Jerusalem. Do you see how God is using two parallel tracks uh, going on at the same time to get the gospel to Gentiles in Antioch? What appears, I think, from a bird's eye view is the orchestration of the Holy Spirit then to get the gospel to non-Jews in parallel tracks so that when these two tracks meet here in Acts chapter 11 with Barnabas going to Antioch, there is found only unity and encouragement in a common mission to both Jews and Gentiles with the gospel. This gospel-sharing church in Antioch enjoyed the blessing of God on their faithfulness. They were started by gospel preachers. They took that gospel preaching and extended it to Gentiles. And as a result of their faithfulness, God blesses them. Verse 21 speaks for itself here, doesn't it? The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. As these believers, as these disciples of Jesus prioritize the sharing of the gospel to people of all races, all ethnicities, all hometowns and home countries, The hand of the Lord blesses them and blesses those who hear the gospel that they preach. Through their proclamation of Jesus, God then convicts, as he does, people of his perfect holiness, of their own sin and the deserved consequences for sin. The Lord convicts them of the great uh, and demonstrates to them the great hope and peace that, that uh, that they can have in being made right with God. By trusting the Lord Jesus, sinners can know in Antioch and in Albuquerque a life as God intends both now and eternal life in his presence as he raises them from the dead. The preached gospel changes hearts. The Holy Spirit attends, accompanies the preaching of the gospel to change hearts. And that's what we see happening with ordinary men and women as they take the gospel to Antioch and preach it faithfully. God does what only he can do and turns sinners' hearts to him. Now listen, looking at Antioch as a model healthy church, if we are to be a healthy church here at First Baptist West Albuquerque, we must prioritize gospel conversations with non-believers. This church in Antioch prioritized gospel sharing. Friends, if we're to be a, a, a healthy church, we too must prioritize gospel sharing. More than the programs we employ, more than the particular songs that we sing together on a Sunday morning, more than the appearance of our building or whether we have a building to meet in at all, more than our Bible studies and our special missions offerings, if First West is going to be a healthy church, we must prioritize the spoken gospel, the good news of Jesus There's no other way that Christ expands his church, that he grows his kingdom, than through compassionate and compelling witness of Christians to those who are still lost and walking in their sin and do not know it. And don't miss this, friend. God has chosen to use ordinary men and women to do this task. Don't let that be lost on you from Acts chapter 11 this morning. Raise your hand if you think you're ordinary. That's a good number of you, right? God can 
will intends to use you, Christian brother, Christian sister, for the spread of, of his kingdom, for the growth of his kingdom and the spread of the gospel wherever he has planted you. Be encouraged by these ordinary brothers and sisters who are scattered around the known world at the time, who just simply, faithfully took the gospel with them everywhere that they went. Healthy churches prioritize gospel sharing. But in verses 22 through 26, we see also that healthy churches display transformed lives. Healthy churches, healthy gatherings of believers, followers of Jesus, display transformed lives. The transformation that takes place in Antioch because of the gospel there and people repenting of sin and, and turning to Christ in faith, necessitated investigation, investigation and evaluation from the church in Jerusalem. We said before Jerusalem is kind of the, kind of the, uh, the, the, the central place where the church is expanding out of. The apostles do most of their ministry there and around Jerusalem. Uh, it's where the first church was started. It is to Jerusalem uh, and, and the apostles, the church in Jerusalem, that believers in Acts 15 will go to for wisdom and counsel on dealing with Gentiles and Jews, both in the church together. And so you have with this uh, sort of uh, hub or, or headquarters for the church in Jerusalem uh, a, a kind of uh, investigation and evaluation needing to take place as the gospel goes to different places. The apostles are wanting to make sure that the gospel is not being misrepresented or taught inappropriately as it goes out and certainly is, is gaining steam. So as word of the spread of the gospel in Antioch reached the church in Jerusalem, the disciples there, now disciples in Acts is a generic term for a follower of Jesus, so that doesn't mean just the, the 12 that followed Jesus. The believers, the church there, determined to send someone up to Antioch to investigate and to evaluate the situation there. And so they send their chief encourager, the nicknamed son of encouragement, Barnabas himself. You may remember Barnabas from Acts chapter 4. A man who was himself a Greek-speaking native of the island of Cyprus and so would have had an immediate connection with the Cyprian evangelists in Antioch that had made their way there. And as Barnabas is sent to Antioch to investigate the church and the things that are going on there, he finds that their transformation by the gospel was genuine and was godly. Verses 23 and 24 say this, When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Luke tells us here, right, that Barnabas is met with the grace of God in the presence of these new believers. That he's glad in his heart by what he witnesses there. And certainly without a doubt, Barnabas is persuaded that this Jew-Gentile awakening that is happening in Antioch is genuine, is spirit-empowered. It is true. It is sincere. And he, being the son of encouragement that he is, exhorts the believers there. He encourages them to be united in the purposes and intentions of their heart uh, uh, in, in and to the Lord in all things. Now, this he does because, as Luke tells us, he's a good man, filled with the Holy Spirit and with faith. And this is nothing we don't already know about Barnabas from his actions in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, and in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, where where Barnabas goes and finds Saul who's just been converted, and he's in Jerusalem, and he's kind of vouching for Saul with the other apostles to say, no, 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 this guy's he's really converted. He really knows the Lord. He's okay. This is just what Barnabas does. This is just who the Lord made him to be, a chief encourager in the church. The result, again, of Barnabas' encouragement, now to the church in Antioch, And the help to that church there is continued growth through new conversions to faith in Jesus. Indeed, as we read in verse 24, the Lord added many to their number. Their transformation was genuine and godly. But we see 
there in Antioch that transformed gospel lives or lives that are transformed by the gospel cause gospel growth. They lead to continued gospel spreading, continued gospel growth. So great is the transformation taking place in Antioch. And so many are, are the numbers of people that are coming to the Lord in Antioch that Barnabas cannot on his own give leadership to the growing church there. So what does he do? But recall his old friend Saul, that Pharisee turned evangelist, who returned to Tarsus just a few dozen miles from Antioch. Now nearly ten years have passed since Saul returned to his hometown uh, and what we have here in Acts chapter 11. A whole decade between the end of Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11. Well, Barnabas has to engage then in quite a search to find uh, Saul. Luke uses a word here in verse 25 that implies a search involving some difficulty and trial. Think of it, you, you had a good friend that moved away 10 years ago. You know generally where they moved to. If you go to that place to try to find them, it's going to take you a minute, if you haven't talked to them much in 10 years, to find where they are. But upon fi- eventually finding Saul, both Barnabas and Saul, who we know as Paul, return to Antioch and there teach for a whole year the grace of God continually, and see the grace of God continually awakening, uh, awakening new people to the gospel. God, transformed gospel lives cause gospel growth as God brings leaders into a place to teach the truth about who Jesus is and to teach sound doctrine. Uh, things grow and move, and that's a good thing. And we see as a result of this growth that the transformed lives of the disciples now in Antioch becomes obvious to the city of Antioch. Verse 26 goes on to tell us that in Antioch, the believers were first called Christians. Would it surprise you to know that the term Christian is found only three times in all the Bible? Would it? Well, it's true. It does. Okay? The word Christian only appears three times in all of Scripture. First here in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Then later in Acts chapter 26, verse 28. And finally, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. In every place that the word Christian is used in the Bible, it is attributed to believers from those outside the church. It's a term that outsiders use for believers. Now, among themselves, Christians more commonly call one another believers, brothers, disciples, the church, the elect, the people of God, even saints. All of those are used far more than three times each in the course of the Bible. That word Christian is a word used by outsiders. The word itself means one who looks or acts like Christ. And whether the Antiochenes, those living in Antioch, intended the nickname as an insult or not, some think, it did, some think that they did, the simple fact that they gave the Christians a designator does tell us that the disciples in Antioch had so soundly defined their community and impact in their city so as to receive a cultural designation by the unbelievers. They now had a name by those who did not know them. What is important for us to take away from this is that the nickname that the resident Antiochenes gave to the church is perfectly in keeping with what is clearly known and exhibited by those Christians, that they know, love, worship, and follow the Lord Jesus. There is among some who call themselves Christians today a sense that just by identifying themselves as Christian, just by slapping that name tag on their chest, that they are so. I'm a Christian. Hello, my name is Christian. But 2,000 years ago, it was not those inside the body of Christ who called themselves Christians, who called themselves little Christs, but those who were outside the church. Friends, if we in the church had to be painfully and perfectly honest with ourselves, 
What might the pattern of our lives say about who we are? Without knowing that we're members of a particular church, would non-believers at your work, at school, at our mom's clubs and sports teams, would they rightly call us Christian by what they see in our lives? Friends, I pray that far more than our political leanings, our choice of schooling for our children, far more than brand names of things that we possess in our homes, far more than even where our cars are parked between 9 and 12 on a Sunday morning, that our lives would be characterized as having been transformed, not just influenced, but transformed by the person, the work, gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, church, if we are a healthy church, if we are to be a healthy church, we will behave, we will live in a visibly Christ-like manner. We will. This means so much more to us than not using foul language or following the law and being respectable. Those are all things that, that show a life that might be influenced by Christianity, but not necessarily a life that is transformed by Christ himself. Friends, behaving like Christ means loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It means loving our neighbor as ourselves. It means, as Jesus says, that we love our enemies and pray for those who mean us harm. Behaving like Christ means counting the cost of following Jesus and being ready and willing to give up our rights and expectations of safety and comfort at his command. Behaving in a visibly Christ-like manner means caring for the poor and the vulnerable, protecting the dignity of all persons, and humbly standing for truth in a relativistic culture. Most of all, it means we are to declare the good news that King Jesus is building his kingdom as he rules and reigns in the hearts of sinners to turn from themselves and to trust in him. Brothers and sisters, my church family at First Baptist West Albuquerque, may we be a healthy church, display that we are a healthy church by behaving, by living, by interacting with others in a visibly Christ-like manner. Let us be transformed by Christ, not merely influenced by him. Third and finally, in verses 27 through 30, we see here that healthy churches give generously. Healthy churches give generously. Here in these verses, we're told of a prophet named Agabus, a member of the church who's gifted with prophecy, either to speak a word from the Lord applied from Scripture to the hearts of the believers, or even to speak about future events, travels from Jerusalem north to Antioch to kind of see what's going on in the city, and there he does what the Lord has gifted him to do. He prophesies about a coming famine. So in time, we see that, that, that Agabus and other prophets as well, Luke says, travel up here to Antioch, Wanting, I think, out of curiosity to see what's going on there. Um, but as they do so, or, or minister to the church in the power of the Holy Spirit by saying, hey, here's what's coming. And there Agabus uh, prophesies about a widespread worldwide famine that will be coming soon. And Luke tells us that this famine did take place in verse 28 in the days of Claudius, the emperor at the time. Uh, now this uh, famine that uh, Luke writes about, that, that Agabus prophesies we know from history, did take place uh, due to widespread flooding in Egypt, which was, which was at the time the breadbasket of the world. And so there's a ton of flooding of the Nile, destroys crops, and because of that, it takes a long time to recover. And so the rest of the world is hurt by the fact that there's no grain, there's no barley, there's nothing coming out of Egypt. But Agabus prophesies this sometime before the famine actually hits. And even before the famine is a reality, just at the word of the Lord through this faithful prophet Agabus, the Antioch church, we read, determines, as with firm resolve, to send aid down south to their brothers and sisters in Judea. 
And friends, we should understand from this verse that there's nothing, there is nothing that will keep these Christians in Antioch for caring for their Jewish background brothers and sisters in the coming famine. Because when family hurts, family helps. And this church in Antioch is determined to give generously. We find later in verses 29 and 30 that they gave with generous hearts and with open hands. Luke tells us in verse 29 that they were determined to give, each according to their own ability. It's important for us, I think, to see here that generosity in the church, that care for one another, is not compulsory. It's not forced. It's entirely voluntary and willing. There's no arm twisting. There's no threshold setting. There's no minimum required gift here in Acts chapter 11. But everyone in the church willingly gives what they can, what God has blessed them with the ability to give. This is the very same kind of generosity that we have already seen in the church from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. As we find the believers keeping all things in common so that all of their needs are being cared for, being met. Only here in Acts chapter 11, one church sees fit to send a monetary gift to a church now 300 miles away. Most of the time the care and compassion that was taking place in the local church was kind of confined to the local bodies. The local bodies of believers. But here, this church in Antioch says, nope, we're going to send money to a church 300 miles away because they're family. And when family hurts, family helps. The church in Antioch is a church with generous hearts and with open hands, to be sure. Their generosity is shown in the immediacy of their determination to give. There is no question in their hearts and minds that they must give to this need, that they must give to the ministry of other brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And it's clear that they view that all that they have is from God, to be managed well and to be managed for His glory. And part of managing God's uh, provision well is is in giving out of our excess to those who have need, giving out of our excess to the ministry of the gospel. Now, this kind of understanding of God's provision to us, that He gives what He gives, whether much or little, for us to use for His glory, allows the church in Antioch to hold their finances loosely. Not to treat them loosely, but to hold them loosely. And with an open hand, they offer whatever they can to support the ministry and the care of the church in the world. This healthy church in Antioch is a church that gives generously. Now listen, Christian, this isn't a sermon about tithing, but it is a little bit about generosity. Real gospel health here at First West, if we're going to be a healthy church, real gospel health will be seen in our stewardship and generosity in building the kingdom of God. It will be seen with how tightly or how loosely we, we hold those things that God has provided us with. Now listen, most of the ways that, that we show generosity here in a, a Western culture where, where, um, where money, uh, currency, physical currency is kind of the, the easiest way to take care of things, I, I, I get and it is good that, that believers give uh, a designated portion that is sacrificial, generous, and ongoing, regular, right off the top of their income to the ministry of the local church. Right? Many of you give a tithe, 10%, right off the top of your paycheck before you pay any other bills. You set that 10% aside to give to the church. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And our ministry at this church grows and flourishes as a result of it. But know also, friends, that God has blessed you. He's provided you with other things too. He's not provided all of us with a lot of excess money that we can give to things. But he has given some of us with particular gifts of hospitality, of love, care, mercy, homes with extra rooms. Kitchens that work and food in our pantries that we can use to, to give in care and comfort, even in hospitality to those in need, to those who don't know Christ. 
So when we talk about generosity and we talk about stewardship, we are talking about money, but we're also talking about all of the other things that God has provided you with. Healthy churches and mature Christians, like the church at Antioch, are not concerned with building their own kingdoms, but with Christ's. This does not mean that in godly wisdom we do not plan and save for the future. It doesn't mean that we treat our finances loosely. But it does mean that we don't greedily hoard the resources God has given to us to the detriment of our Christian ministry. As I said before, I'm incredibly proud of the giving history of this church. And I'm incredibly proud of the fact that our church right now gives 12.5% of every general offering dollar to mission causes, theological education, and to our Baptist camps here in New Mexico. I praise God for that. But the challenge of generosity that we as a church, uh, 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 excuse me, but the, the challenge of generosity that we as a, a church, uh, uh, I've mixed myself up in my notes, friends. Let's just move right along. The challenge to us is this, that we see all that we have that God has given to us with open hands and with open hearts. That, that we realize that, that whether it's our house or our car or whatever, uh, uh, regular income, space in our home, that we look at all of it and say, all of this is from God. All of it is to be used for God and for his glory. Christian, have you, like the Antioch church, like the Antioch Christians, have you determined already to give generously to and through the church as part of your management, as part of your stewardship of what God has given to you? What things can you determine to do without to live within your means and, and in order to be a generous giver. Cable TV, your weekly Starbucks, your unlimited data plan. Would you ask God this week, I pray, to show you how to better manage what he has provided you with in order to be more generous for the cause of the gospel? We all have things that we can do without for the sake of being more generous with what God has provided. We can all do a better job of stewarding, of managing the gifts that God has given of managing the spiritual gifts that he's given to us, of managing the the physical things beyond just money, of our homes, of our cars, of, of all the things that we have given. Friend, would you commit with me to pray this week that God would show to you those things that maybe you can do without for the sake of being able to be more generous for the cause of Christ? In conclusion, what we have before us in the church in Antioch is a church worth modeling. And most certainly, as we strive to grow in health as a church at First West, we will also look at aspects of the church that we don't see specifically here in Acts chapter 11. Things like church leadership, discipleship, the ordinances, sound doctrine. But Antioch gives us a really good direction to follow. They give gratefully and generously to those in need for the cause of the kingdom of Christ. God has resourced our church, friends, for gospel mission with both finances with both the finances that we have and the spiritual gifts that he has given to us. Friends, let let each of us strive to be generous with our lives and with the resources that, that we have for the cause of Christ. But also we see that the Antioch church was a church transformed by and into the very character of Christ. And for it, they were called Christian. They were called little Christs. Like all disciples of Jesus for the last 2,000 years, we have been commanded to give our lives over to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and to the gospel as we trust in Jesus as Lord. So brothers and sisters of First West, I pray that our community, the people that live around us, the people that live in this city, would know that we are Christians by the love that we have for one another, for our neighbors, and most especially for the truth of the gospel. Finally, we see that the Antioch church started as a gospel-loving, Jesus-sharing, Jesus truth-bearing church. 
They started by the gospel and grew in it. They so loved the truth of the life that the Lord Jesus gave that they could not keep from sharing it. More than anything else, that determines who they are as a church. In a few weeks, we'll look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1, where we'll see uh, the church in Antioch one more time. But look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Maybe just flip over a page in your Bible to see uh, this continued emphasis on gospel preaching in the church at Antioch. There we read, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We know this to be the beginning of Paul's first of several missionary journeys, gospel speaking, gospel preaching journeys throughout the Roman Empire. This church at Antioch started as a gospel sharing church, grew as a gospel sharing church, and expanded throughout the Roman Empire because they were a gospel sharing, Jesus preaching church. My dear brothers and sisters, may we long to be a model healthy church as we follow God's example to us in ancient Antioch as we prioritize gospel sharing among our body. Let's pray.